You know when you get a haircut and you're kind of in that in-between stage and it's not quite exactly what you, that's where I am right now. And um, I did a baptism one Sunday and it was, um, um, the guy, they had had children uh, young and then like the age range was about 15 years between one set of children and and the next one. Uh, And they named the baby Grace. And so they... um, so when they had Grace baptized, I baptized the baby, and the older kids were away at school and um, were a little too cool for school, you know what I mean? Like they just weren't, they're kind of, I just wanted to grab them and, and shake them, and, uh, and it was, a, they were twins, brother and sister were the older two, and uh, they were sitting there, and we got invited to the luncheon afterwards, and we're sitting there, and I have this, the, the more anxious and sort of, not nervous, but the more like, we got to get this show on the road, I get, I start going like this with my hair. And I went like that, and the boy hits his twin sister and says, See, I told you it was real. (laughs) Let us pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, become real to us today, Lord, that we would be focused on you and that you would draw our hearts to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, there's this really wonderful scene. It's the very last scene in uh, the movie Finding Nemo. Do you remember it? Of course, Nemo is the little fish who somehow gets scooped up and uh, taken to Sydney to the uh, office of a dentist. And he's there in the tank, and he manages to escape. And um, the other fish in the fish tank in the dentist's office are trying to escape too, and they hatch this very elaborate plan and uh, they show at the very end that they've actually been able to get into bags and roll themselves out of the dentist's office onto the, you know, out of the building, and they roll themselves all the way into Sydney Harbor. And so there they are in these bags, and they're like, yay, we escaped. And then they look at each other in these bags, and one of the fish says, now what? <laughs> you know, now what? And often that's the question that comes up in the life of a Christian of, of now what? Now, now that we've experienced redemption, that we've experienced release, that we've experienced uh, this overwhelming sense of freedom, uh, what do we do now? What do we do now? And that is often the question that I get and the question that we a lot of times get here at the Advent because we pretty much preach the same message 52 Sundays a year. It just sounds a little bit different from week to week. And it's, it's really hard figuring out illustrations that work for that. But, um, but nonetheless, uh, we've been accused of one-note Johnny, but that's because we take our cue from the Bible, which we'll see this morning in Acts chapter 2. But there still is this question, okay, I, I hear the gospel, I understand what Jesus Christ has done for me, uh, but now what? And it's true when you first become a Christian, uh, for those of you who became a Christian later in life especially, you become so zealous that you... You want to do everything in the church. So all of a sudden, you know, you become a Christian. You start coming to the church. You don't, I mean, the doors are open and you're there. You will do everything from uh, things you would never in a million years do, like uh, volunteer to sit in the nursery, uh, sing in, in the choir, uh, drive this church bus uh, to the Barons baseball game, um, all those types of things. And, uh, and it's, you, you want to you do something. You want your faith uh, to show, and yet uh, it, it still feels like, well, now what? what? What's the next level? How do I ratchet my faith up uh, to get to the next level? And the church has provided plenty of bad answers uh, through through the years and has basically given us these false ladders to heaven to think, well, if you're really 
really spiritual, uh, then you'll do this. And if you're not spiritual, uh, you won't do this. And so it really came home to roost uh, for me when I was, real, I was struggling with something at one point in time. And in reading the Bible and allowing God to minister to me through his word, uh, I realized that uh, God has brought me to the place where I actually have uh, the freedom to eat two servings of butter pecan ice cream at St. Martin's of the Pines in front of the residents. And, uh, and so I did that without guile. And, um, but you got to get the butter pecan early at Fellowship in the Pines because it goes, goes pretty quick. So uh, that there is this sense that what, what God wants us to experience uh, in him and the what next is really a freedom in him uh, to know the bounds and the depth of his love. And so immediately following Pentecost, when 3,000 were added to the church, we actually are given a picture of what does the then what, now what, uh, look like. Uh, So I'm going to read from uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And they devoted, that is the 3,000 who who had come to faith, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had needed. As any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Okay, so one of the things that, um, that uh, we did in our last parish that me being sort of a of a grumpy guy uh, did was we used to say, well, Pentecost is the birthday of the church. Uh, But that's actually not true. Um, The church has been around forever, right? I mean, Abraham believed and his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. And so this is not uh, the the beginning of the church, but this is the manifestation of the Holy Spirit of God in the lives of the believers where now God inhabits the hearts of his people, that, that he no longer lives and a man-made temple as grand and as beautiful as it was, uh, but God has actually come and abides in you. God abides in you, which is a radical notion because in the Old Testament, God lived in, in the tabernacle. He, he lived in the Holy of Holies, in the temple. And when he manifested himself anywhere else in the Bible, it was normally not a good thing. You had to shield your eyes. You had to look away. And if you weren't killed... At the very least, uh, you, you got a, a pretty amazing tan, right? You, you saw the, the bronze on Charlton Heston when he walked down uh, from the mountain. And so um, it, it was this whole idea of God coming close uh, was, was, was not something that you necessarily, you wanted it. You wanted personal intimacy and closeness to God, but you didn't, uh, it, was, it was frightening. It, it was over, overwhelming. And so when uh, Jesus calls Peter, uh, remember they go out and they have this great uh, catch of fish and, um, and Peter falls before Jesus and says, depart from me, Lord. Get, aw- get away from me. Right? You, you're too, you, this is too overwhelming. You, you make me feel small. Uh, you, you, you are a magnifying glass on all those parts of my life that I would rather not see, uh, much less uh, you see. And 
so what you find, especially in the life of Peter, as he continues to grow in his faith, what he grows in is an understanding of God's grace and God's love toward him. Because you remember when Peter is restored, if you get into the latter part of John, remember Jesus manifests himself and he's standing on the shore. And what are Peter and the disciples doing? They're fishing. And Jesus says, throw your nets in on the other side. And then what happens? Same halt. Ding, 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 ding. Peter gets it. Peter throws his clothes on, which I think is always very funny, uh, and then jumps into the water. Um, and, uh, uh, but there's something to be said about that. And then he swims. And when he gets to seashore, uh, does, he, does he say, depart me from me, Lord? Uh, for I, What does he cry when he's in the boat? It's the Lord. And nothing is going to keep him in, the ba- in that boat. He swims as hard and as fast as he can to the seashore to get close to Jesus while his friends are left in the boat with all these fish and left to row and think, well, thanks a lot. This is awesome. Uh, and, uh, and, and Peter makes it on shore and can't get to Jesus fast enough. Well, what happens? Same situation, but two very different reactions where Peter says, get away from me on the one hand. And the other hand is, I can't get close enough to you. Well, what has happened is the truth of the gospel has sunk down in Peter's heart. And he know, he can know himself. And he does know himself. One of the things that Christianity does is it brings about a great sense of self-awareness in the life of the believer, right? So a lot of people will say, well, Christians seem a little bit down. Well, if you mean in the sense that that if you ask me, you know, what kind of person I am, and I don't necessarily, if I'm honest, right, if I'm honest, it's sort of like if you really want to know what somebody's like, ask their spouse. What's that person like, right? That's that's a frightening thought. Um, um, I always take Lauren in, into job interviews with me, and um, and uh, we got hired, so it worked. Yeah. <laughs> right. So on the one hand, I mean, there's a sense of well, that sounds like the glass is half full, but there's freedom in, in knowing who you are, and and understanding your limitations and abilities. Otherwise, if you have an inflated view of yourself, life can be pretty frustrating. Right? Uh, not even just abilities, but for me, I often think that I, I deserve things. Uh, you know, I, I deserve this. Y'all know this, but I'm just going to go ahead and say it again for the millionth time. Uh, one of the things that drives me absolutely nuts are, are uh, what red lights mean in, in Birmingham, which is absolutely nothing. <laughs> and, um, and so you have to be very careful going through intersections, even after it turns solid green for a split second. And I get so mad at people when they run the red lights. And do you know why I get mad at them? I can say safety, and I can say, but it's because um, they got away with it. And I don't. <laughs> I don't. I just, I just, I, I don't. And, uh, and so the real reason why I don't like people running red lights is because I don't want them getting away with something that I don't get away with. Right. So if, if I'm able to actually admit that, there's some freedom in that, and I can say to myself, Andrew, get over it. Just who, like, they may actually have a very good reason why they need to run the red light. Probably not, but they might, you know, um, have a very good reason uh, to run uh, a red light. Um, the other thing is just, I mean, everybody's in such a hurry. Right? Everybody's in such a hurry. When we were in Israel, there was a, a lady on our trip who was English and probably in her mid to late 70s and full of life, and I loved her very much. And she was famous for setting her watch for it five minutes and expected everybody else to abide. And so every time Lauren and I would get on the bus, she would say, you're late. 
And, um, and finally, and I would, at first I'd start to argue and say, you know, Vola, I, I, we're, we're not late. You're just, your watch is set too fast. She goes, it's right. And so I, there's no arguing with her. And so finally she did this six or seven more times. And I finally said, look, Vola, at your age, I wouldn't set my watch too far fast. Right? I mean, <laughs> you, you might just want to hold back a little bit, sister. Uh, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of, uh, there's actually a lot of encouragement in being self-aware and being able to say, um, I'm this way because of, of this, because of sin. It's a condition in my heart. And if I can understand, like, I'm just mad at them because they're able to get away with it, I can actually say to myself, who cares? And God is God, and he is going to sort that out on the great judgment day, right? I mean, he's going to stand up there and be like, I have here, you know, you ran the red light and, and um, but anyway, so... Uh, that's, that's, I can, I begin to say, like St. Paul, I'm the chief of sinners, right? I'm the chief of sinners. And therefore, uh, I've done far worse than, than run red lights. I've done far worse, uh, than other people, but because my, my propensity is, is to judge people and to say, uh, how dare you, uh, but because I'm a Christian, I can actually think on myself. And what that does is it might actually engender compassion in me toward the people who run red lights or the people who do things uh, that, that upset me. But for Christians, uh, there still is, on the one hand, we think that the way to, um, after, the Christian li- after you've begun the Christian life, after you enter into a personal relationship with God, through Jesus Christ, uh, the person and the work of Jesus, uh, there is the, the now what question. And a lot of churches aren't preaching this notion of self-awareness and knowing the truth about yourself, but also the gracious truth about God. And what they'll do is they'll try to give you little helpful hints for living. And what they do is they become the spiritual arm of the sheriff's department. And so if you remember two weeks ago, uh, we had a little class on what makes a good sermon. And what do you remember from the bad sermon? Do you remember anything from the bad sermon? It's pretty memorable. Uh, if, if you weren't here, Sandy. Uh, so, uh, uh, well, what it was is this guy got up and he basically just got ticked off because a guy was nodding asleep in the sermon. Right? And if you can actually watch the whole sermon online, and it's an hour and two minutes, and I don't care how dynamic you are, like snooze fest. Right? If you can't say it in 20 minutes or less, just sit down. You know, just, just call it quits. So um, I say that in my last parish... The average sermon was 27 minutes. And people, would, this, the preacher would always say, well, Andrew, what did you think of my sermon? I, thought the, I said, the first two-thirds were awesome. <laughs> so, but his thing was, so he, he's preaching the sermon, and he sees this guy nodding off, and he loses it. He totally loses it and goes out in the congregation and starts calling the guy out and being like, you're, you're sleeping during the sermon. You need to w- stay awake. I'm important. What I have to say is important. And furthermore, you and here's your fiance right here. And I'm supposed to marry you. And I think you two are the sorriest bunch of nobodies I ever met. You're not worth 15 cents. And he, he just went with it. Now, all of a sudden, he's like, and you, and you. And he starts calling people out in the congregation. And I mean, you can just feel the congregation. Like, I guarantee if you went to that church today, there are marks on the pews where everyone just held on tight. <laughs> it was kind of slowly drifted down. And, uh, and I mean, he walks up to one guy and he says, hey, Kelly, Kelly, you remember where your wife and your sisters were when I came to this church? And, you know, poor Kelly's like, Lord, take me now. Just kill me. Just kill me. And uh, and then and then best of all, he gets uh, I, the guy's last name is Cox. And he stands up in the pulpit and he's like, 
And we got young Cox back there in the TV room. And he needs to learn to submit to me and not build his own audiovisual kingdom. Right? And so he's going after the poor AV. And you know who put the sermon up on YouTube? The AV guy. Right? Um, so uh, he just goes off. And what this preacher thinks, he's operating under the notion that if I want to see changed lives, I turn up the volume. I ratchet it up the next level. And if I just really get on people's cases, and the more specific, the better, because one of the things he says in the sermon is, uh, you won't get this at any other church in town. Like, you're right about that. Um, and so he thinks that if I, can, if I can sit down and simply make a list of your deficiencies, you'll become a better person. Now, let's take work. Who here loves their annual review? It's, don't you look forward to it? You wake up in the morning, you're like, hooray, world. Uh, no, I mean, think about an annual review, which has, we do them here, and, and they, have, they have their uses. Uh, but you go in with a spirit of fear, and if you have somebody reviewing you who is a particularly bad reviewer, and they start to nitpick and bring up all the little things, uh, they could say a thousand good things about you, but if they say one bad thing about you, you're going to remember the bad thing. And what will happen from there on in is you think, as long as I orient my work life, around this one thing, and as long as I, I do this one thing in order to correct it, all will be well. But that creates a great deal of insecurity. And what is actually motivating you in your work life? Fear. Right? Fear. Knowing that people will like me, my boss will like me, so long as I'm able to perform. And so this preacher is preaching the way that he is. And for him, he thinks, I'll be able to tell if you're a good enough Christian if you abide by what I say, the words he used, if you submit to me, right, the mo- like, have a sniper ready. If I ever say that, take me out. Just take me out because it's over. And if you submit to me, then everything would be great. Now, on the one hand, in life, that's true, right? If everybody were just like me, life would be awesome, right? Life would be great if you think that. But the bottom line is that if that's the kind of ministry that you, you have to people, they will avoid you like the plague, Uh, They will lie to you, and their life will simply be a projection of what you want them to see. And they're not really worried about honoring the Lord. What they're worried about is honoring the person and laying low, just hoping that he gets on a rant and a sermon that he won't single you out. And even if he does, even if he does, if he says, Andrew, six months ago I got on you about this, and brother, man, are you doing much better. Praise the Lord. Everybody should be more like Andrew. But what he doesn't know is that there is a group of guys that play golf with me on Friday sitting in the congregation, and they know better. They know that, oh, you see this, Andrew, uh, but, but we saw what Andrew does when he misses a two-and-a-half putt, two-and-a-half foot putt. We, we, know, we know, if you ever want to really get to know somebody, play golf with them. And, uh, so, so your life becomes uh, a projection. And so there are a lot of preachers and a lot of churches that are preaching for results, They think that from their preaching, and they normally somewhere in the sermon will give you some sort of admonishment, here's what you ought to do, and then they'll begin to look for it in the life of the congregation, and that's a deadly way to do ministry. You want to know why a lot of clergy burn out? I have a friend who's burnt out on ministry, and we were talking about it. Why are you burnt out? He said, because I get up there every single week, and I pour my heart out, and these people just aren't doing what I'm telling them to do. And I thought that, I mean, one, that's a lot to put on a congregation. And two, that's a lot to put on yourself to think that you actually have the ability in your humanity to change somebody's life. 
And what that means is that you don't think that God has the power to do it, and you think you've got to do it. Charles Spurgeon has a wonderful quote uh, when he said this, I preached morality till I made all of the people in my parish immoral. I kept urging them to keep God's law till I made them break it. But when I turned round and began to preach God's gospel, the dumb began to sing. That's the truth of it. That if you want to make a congregation full of lawbreakers, you preach, you preach the law. That's, that's what you do. You, you preach the law. But what we find here in the books of, book of Acts, we hear Peter's sermon, and he gets up and he preaches the person and work of Jesus Christ. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And then what do they begin to do? They devote, and then, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread, excuse me, and the prayers. Uh, one of the things that we have here at the Advent, and I trust I mean, because the Bible teaches it, and, and I think the church believes it, we have a high doctrine of the Holy Spirit, that when you began to preach uh, the Word of God, the Holy Spirit grabs hold of people's lives, and He begins to change them, right? I, I, don't, I don't need to tell them, now that you're a Christian, here's what you do, right? Because they already know that, because God is working in their life. Now, it may be that I can help provide them direction of how they can get involved, if they, you know, I feel called to this kind of ministry, but I don't know exactly what to do or how to do it. But as, as an involuntary response to what God has done in their lives, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and, and prayers. They didn't need uh, to be encouraged or admonished. They simply did. They simply did. And so when you read the Bible and you talk about fruits of the Spirit, those things that come out of the life of the believer, uh, the Bible is very clear that it doesn't say that you produce fruit, patience, kindness, all the fruits of the Spirit, uh, but it uses the word bear. You don't produce them, you simply bear them, that God works through your life and you simply bear the fruit. Now, if you're anything like me, kind of circling back around where we were talking at the beginning, um, I, I don't feel like I'm that fruitful most of the time, right? In fact, if, if I'm producing or bearing any fruit, um, well, I know I'm not producing any, but if I'm bearing any fruit, uh, it, it, it sort of seems like it's, it's meager and it's probably not as, as healthy as, as other people. And, um, and I'll be the first, I like to inspect other people's fruit. So I kind of look over here and be like, oh, that guy, he's so fruitful. And here I am over here. And uh, the thing about it is, is I think a mark of the Christian is to think maybe I'm not as fruitful as I ought to be. That's a good place to be because you think, right, I, I, I'm not happy. I'm not satisfied uh, with where I am. But what I'm putting my trust in is that um, it's not me producing the fruit. It's God working through me. And oftentimes, I don't even, I'm not even aware of the fruit that God is producing in my life to bear uh, because Jesus says it. The left hand ought not to know what the right hand is doing. Right? If I all of a sudden see all this fruit in my life and all kinds of great things are happening, my propensity is to think I am awesome. Right? <laughs> I believe in justification by faith. I preach justification by faith. But if attendance goes down a little bit, I think, I wonder what I said wrong. Right? I really think that there was something that I did. When in reality, prom, um, family in town, like Mar- By the way, the other Saturday night, I feel I've realized I've gotten really old because I'm in bed and all I hear is, and I'm like, what? And I stick my head out the window and Russell Levinson Sr. lives next door and he goes, you too, huh? And it sort of startled me and I said, why are you stalking me? And so 
He was looking out the window, and we, and we couldn't figure out. It was prom. It was prom. And so here I am at 11 o'clock at night trying to figure out, you know, I don't want to call 911, but what's the number to Mountain Brook Police to get them? To, anyway, so. <laughs> so if there's, I can't help but feel like if there's any sort of downturn or anything like that, that it, that it must be something about me. And what that is is, is me saying, uh, one, I'm trying to take credit for something that's, that's not me, and I'm not putting my trust in the Lord, trusting that God is actually working and active in my life and in the life of other, other believers. So when these 3,000 entered into a relationship with Jesus, their involuntary response was to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. That is, they uh, were filled with the Spirit, and that doesn't mean that they were anti-intellectual. Now, there is a, a vein in the church today that feels like, well, uh, all you really need is, is the Holy Spirit. And as I've said before, the Holy Spirit gets blamed for a lot of things the Holy Ghost would never do. <laughs> and that there's this notion of as long as you're filled with the Holy Ghost, go, go, and do. Uh, but here in the book of Acts, what we see is that, yes, they're filled with the Holy Ghost, but what it creates them is a passion for God's Word to not only know God's word, but to sit at the feet of the apostles and learn. Uh, Just wanting to really take everything in that they possibly can to have a thirst uh, for knowledge. Look, I'll be the first to admit, I'm not one who's really excited about getting up early in the morning uh, for a quiet time. But as a Christian, uh, and, and I guarantee this is true, even though many of you might find it hard to make time every day to be in God's Word, uh, I bet you when you do make time, you think, this is awesome. Why don't I do this all the time? And, and life can be uh, tyrannical, uh, but inside all of us, when, when we get into God's Word, it's not, well, I guess, you know, as a Christian, I need to, to get into the Word today. But there's, there's a longing for it. There, you, you want to draw close and draw near with God. And the, the quickest way to do that and the most accessible way to do that is to read God's Word God's word to us. And so that's what the believers were doing. They were sitting at the feet of the apostles, taking in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Tell me again uh, the old, old story of the mighty works of God uh, in the life of his people. Now, um, we mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but that was one of the role of the apostles, that what they did is they primarily taught. They were, they were evangelists. They were doing the work uh, of the evangelist. And what they were passing on to the people was the gospel, the good news of God in Jesus Christ. They weren't getting into uh, sort of, uh, I mean, they did, when, when matters came up in the church, uh, they went right to the heart of them. And, and what you see in the book of Acts, and we're going to get to this, is that when controversies arose, uh, it affected the very heart of the gospel uh, the very truth of the gospel and what it meant uh, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And uh, when they had to, they were unflinching in standing up and saying, this is the real deal. This is the truth. Even, even if it was up against another apostle, uh, one of the things that you had in the church early on is you didn't have the apostles teaching heresy, which we have today, uh, but you had, you had apostles that were a little bit lukewarm, that weren't going full tilt preaching the gospel and putting forward Jesus. And so in the book, in Paul's letter to the Galatians, you have Paul taking Peter on and saying to Peter, you're wrong. And you're wrong because you're not 
you're not preaching the full counsel of God, right? You're not you're not preaching the full gospel uh, concerning. Uh, we'll, we'll get to later on uh, the heresy uh, concerning uh, the Judaizers and whether or not you had to be circumcised and whether or not you had to keep the dietary laws. Uh, but when they were passing on uh, this apostolic succession of truth, what they were doing is they were telling the truth about people and the the truth about Jesus Christ. And those believers were then taking it and moving on and telling other people. Uh, and all came upon every soul. I'm going to leapfrog the other two for just a minute. Uh, it's very easy for me to, uh, to forget that it's a miracle anytime somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ. I think part of it is living in the South. Uh, and I think part of it, too, is... Um, is just uh, taking for granted uh, what God is able to do uh, in the life of a believer. And so uh, God help me uh, when I think when someone becomes a Christian, I think, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, or when someone says God has wrought a miracle, miracle in my life, and I think, oh, well, well praise the Lord, that uh, do I feel the awe in my own heart that God is actually active and doing a great work even here today in Birmingham, Alabama? And I think a lot of us who, um, this is indicative of, of when you first become a believer, right? When you first become a believer, you're ready to charge hell with a water pistol, right? You're ready to go. And, and you have all these sort of mountaintop experiences and you go away to these retreats and all that. And after a while, what happens? Kind of feels like you've lost that love and feeling, right? And, and for a while, you, you try to recapture that feeling by going to retreats and, and things like that and, and you, you feel like you begin uh, to lose the awe. You, you, don't, you don't feel the closeness uh, that you once did. And a part of it, part of it has to do with that actually uh, that's part of a strengthening relationship. Like if you're dating somebody or in marriage with somebody or you're in a friendship, uh, your, your relationship becomes stronger. Uh, and yet when they were overwhelmed with awe, and, and why I think that oftentimes I've lost the awe is because I think that it's situational and it's about circumstance when it's about a person. Right? And again, God help me the moment that I lose my awe over what Jesus Christ has done and, and the wonder of the gospel. I mean, think about the Advent for a minute. Uh, we're a right one church. Uh, we're conveniently located downtown with plenty of parking. Um, uh, you know, most of you live, uh, it, it takes at least 15 to, to 20 minutes uh, for you to get to church. And if you are able to find a spot uh, well, you've got to get your kids, you know, I, I love, you know, a lot of you get your children dressed and put them in bed at night. And then when they wake up in the morning, you kind of thing like that's a good idea. And I mean, the breakfast is great. Uh, very helpful, uh, although not next week. He is risen. Um, so um, uh, it's why would anyone ever want to come to a church like this? Think about all of the other downtown churches uh, in, in America and even here in Birmingham uh, that really struggle. And <clears throat> if there's and a lot of people come here like, how in the world is it that people come to the Advent? Jesus Christ. That is the only reason for anyone to come to. It's the only reason why you ought to go to any church is because Jesus Christ is boldly proclaimed and in his person and work and that God is still able to change lives today. That's, that's the only reason uh, to come to church. And, and there's no, 
I, I joke every once in a while about it because there was a church in Blacksburg, Virginia that was giving away iPods to visitors. And it was like, it wasn't every visitor. It was like every fifth visitor on a Sunday got an iPod. And, um, and so, um, not a bad idea, but... Um, <laughs> Right, we really don't have we really don't have much to, to offer in, in terms of, of convenience and, and programs here during the week. Like we don't have anything here during the week because it's inconvenient and it's hard to get to and uh, and it's 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 dark and they pretty much roll up the sidewalks downtown at, at four thirty. Uh, and so uh, people sort of look at the advent with in wonder and awe, and that's right. You should look at us with wonder and awe because it has nothing to do with anything that we're doing here. It has everything to do with God and the power of His Holy Spirit working in the lives of these people that propel us out of our homes, that make us willing to drive and to park in Lower Lot C and and get in here and and simply uh, be a part of what God is doing in this place. And that's exciting. That's exciting. And so every Sunday we get a glimpse of, of the awe and majesty of God and what He does through the power of the Holy Spirit here in this place, which is the Advent. That in our name. It's so funny. If you're not from Birmingham and someone's like, oh, well, what's the name of your church? They say, oh, the Advent. And they're like, that sounds creepy. <laughs> like, you know, they think that like I've got like a Hawaiian shirt on front and it's like, like this new gimmicky name. I'm like, no, 1872. So... Um, uh, and somebody came, somebody from, I won't mention the church, although you could probably guess it, uh, another church that's a little bit like us, they came up and they're like, what's the T on your sticker? Like, I see them everywhere. I'm like, yes. But they say, what's the T? And I'm like, that's because we're the church, right? You know? <laughs> and um, you, time for you to transfer your membership. <laughs> no, I say, no, it's a Tau cross. It's a cross. It's, it's a Christian symbol, and it's just... It's, it was given to us when Larry Gibson was here and we did our coat of arms through England and they gave us a towel cross. But it, we'll use it any way we can. So, um, right, and so uh, and they, they begin to... Uh, and when God gets a hold of your life, like the apostles here, you, you, start, you, you have these, these conversations. You begin to gossip uh, the gospel. And so uh, you begin to form uh, this community. One of the things that I think is really amazing about the Advent is uh, how do we maintain a Christian community when we're basically a commuter church? And one of the ways that we do that is through small groups, right? If you're not in a small group, I would commend those to you because they're really important and they're a great way to connect. But in addition to that, I was talking to someone one time uh, on staff and they were saying to me, well, I just don't feel like we have enough fellowship here. And I was like, I'll tell you what, once you go to Hot and Hot on a Friday night, 80% of it is Adventers, right? They're all there. Or go to Highlands or, you know, go someplace like that. And they're there. Like we actually hang out with one another and we're part of one another's lives and we share in, in our own struggles. And I think the Advent is one of the chief reasons why Birmingham feels small. Right? Birmingham's a pretty big place, the metro area, a million people. And let, yet you go to the grocery store, you see people you know, right? You go out to dinner, you see people you know. And the people that you know are primarily for me anyway, Adventists, right? And, and, and we're, brother, we're not just in a, we're brothers and sisters in Jesus. And so my connection to you is more than just a passing acquaintance, but in some real way, uh, we're, we're related. And so what happens in the book of Acts and what happens here too is that uh, when you're Christians 
and you're together, uh, you find yourself spending time with one another. You, send your, you find yourself eating with one another. You find yourself uh, praying with one another. You find yourself being a part of a very real community. I mean, think of the people. When, when it all goes down uh, in the middle of the night, uh, who do you call? I bet you you call your Christian friends. That's who you call in the middle of the night. And I bet you the people who are closest to you in your life are fellow Christian believers, more so than probably some of your family members who are not believers. Right? So th- that's, that's what was happening, and they had this community. And so let's talk about communism for a minute. Because I know that some of y'all were thinking that when I read those verses. Um, so what is happening there is that so great is their love for one another that they're not part of a commune, and they're like, let's make hacky sacks. Or, you know, let's... It's, it's, that's not what's happening. But what is happening is that the, this Christian community, and this is true if you look at the church throughout the book of Acts, not every community did this. And not every community did this. So it's not for all Christians in all places. Uh, but what was happening is the communal sharing of material goods was not a divestment of wealth, but it was a willingness on the part of the owners to place their possessions at the disposal of all those believers who were needy. So basically what they were saying is that if you need help, I'm here to help you. They clearly didn't divest of everything because you, you read that they, they what? They met in one another's homes, right? So they, they didn't just sell. Now, I do think that there are times when God calls us and says, give it all up, like the rich young ruler. That happens. But that's not the call on everybody's life. And yet what was happening is people's hearts were changed so much so they didn't say, this is all mine. This is all mine. But instead they said, what I have is God's. And you're my brother and my sister. And if you need help, I'm going to give it to you. One of the things that, and and there's a cultural difference here, but I think that um, it's primarily due to Christianity. Uh, Here in America, if when our Christian friends get sick, we do the right thing. We call, can I do anything for you? But what's our American answer? No, I'm fine. When in fact, there are about a thousand things they could probably do. In the Chinese church, they don't call you. They just show up. They show up with food. They babysit your kids. They help clean the house. They, whether you like it or not, that's what they're going to do. Why? Because that's what Christians do. They, 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 they open themselves up to such a way that they have compassion on someone. And, and let's, if, we, if we sit around and wait for people to say, hey, I need help, we'll sit around forever. Because that's the way it is with God and us. Right? If God is waiting for us to say, okay, God, I could use your help right now, we'll never ask for it. So what God does in his infinite mercy and grace, he doesn't wait for us to yell help. He simply comes into our lives and grabs us by the scruff of the neck and rescues us and holds us in his arms, whether we've asked him to or not. Right? That's how great his love is for us. And you would do the same for your children, wouldn't you? Right? I, you know, if, if your child fell into a pond, you, know, you would be like, are you all right? <laughs> you, need, you, need, you want me to get in? Uh, you would you would say what what would you do you'd immediately you jump in and get them and pull them out right? you'd rescue them and that's the way it is that what God has done uh, in our lives and so uh, these believers uh, look at one another in a way uh, that um, that that uh, they they know that what they have is from God and so they're generous uh, their hearts are open uh, to what God is doing uh, in their lives um, and so. Uh, in addition to that, that propelled them to be an evangelistic church. Um, uh, indeed, Jesus told them, greater works will you see than these. Like 3,000 in one day. It never happened in Jesus' ministry. 
but it's happening here because the power of the Holy Spirit and the Lord added to their number. Another reminder that Luke gives us is not because of their ministry they added to their number, but the Lord God himself added to their number. He began to work in the lives of the hearers who saw what they were doing, who heard what they were doing, and they believed because God was working in in their lives. And so um, God added added to their number. I've had to sort of truncate this because we had a shorter class, and I'll pick up on some of it next week and try to fill in some of the gaps. Uh, but any questions, comments, concerns as we we bolt out? First two-thirds is good. <laughs> nope, two-thirds of a wafer on Sunday for you. Could you just unfold loving your neighbor as yourself as a in the light of seeing yourself as the chief of sinners? Yeah, I mean, in that light, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about it before. Everyone calls that a golden rule. And then Jesus came along and gave us a platinum rule, which is uh, greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his friends as himself. I tell you, love one another as I have loved you, which means a total giving over of yourself. Because, if you, I mean, the golden rule is a good rule to live by, but there's still a little bit of inherent selfishness in that one. Love others as you would have them love you. But the bottom line is, is that if I loved Lauren the way I need to be loved. That's probably, like, loving me is, uh, well... Uh, hard. How, how, yeah, hard, yeah. So, <laughs> so I'm just trying to be careful how I say this. Um, yeah, I mean, so the way that Lauren needs to be loved may not be the way that I, I need to be loved. And so, so the Christian concept of love is this putting yourself wholly aside and loving, pers- loving someone where they are, exactly where they are. There's not this sort of, well, I wonder what I would need. It's just loving them. Just loving them. Craig's dressed, which means I have to go.